Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and it's Thursday. That means it's time for a brand new guest. As we do every week, we're joined by a new guest talking about their life, their journey in the world of martial arts and, and other stuff they're involved in. My guest today grew up in Chicago, where he was an all-American springboard diver, also competing in gymnastics. He holds a degree in psychology, holds a ninth-degree black belt in two different styles, and has been featured in numerous magazine covers and starred in movies such as The Expert, Street Night, and one of my all-time favorites, The Perfect Weapon. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Jeff Speakman. How are you doing today? sir i am doing incredibly well thank you and want to thank you so much for the invitation to be a part of this i'm, I'm glad uh, glad we we're able to work it out i imagine you're probably sitting in better weather than i am right now <laughs> I, said, I, le <laughs> I left vegas yesterday and it was uh, 72 and when i landed back home in uh, in um, fargo north moorhead minnesota fargo north dakota it was zero so <laughs> I'm sure, and you know what that's like being from Chicago, but I, de I definitely, yeah. I only lived in California for a year and every winter I, I just, I, I miss it and I regret it. <laughs> yeah, I, I do not regret leaving Chicago and the weather that I, I, I lived in LA for uh, 28 years okay. and been here for 13 years in Las Vegas. And I, I absolutely love living in Las Vegas. Of course, I don't gamble right? because it would make it a nightmare. But um, but there's so much to do here and such a wonderful quality of life. And of course, like everywhere else, you know, there's two, three months that are miserable. They're either too cold or here they're too hot. Right. But you know what? There's no state income tax after living in traffic in Los Angeles for 28 years. <laughs> this is nothing, nothing. And when people complain about, oh, there's so much traffic, I go, you got no idea. <laughs> if you think this is traffic see and that's the one thing when i when i lived actually so i lived in victorville and i commuted to la habra near anaheim and i it's 65 miles every day for work and the traffic never bothered me i'm just like every time i even thought about bad traffic i just looked at the weather i'm like i don't care it's snowing yeah. back, it's snowing back home i don't care if i have to sit in traffic for two, two three hours every day it doesn't bother me yeah no and a lot of people make that choice yep. you know and they certainly say why Nice, nice. So what we like to do with all my guests, I know a lot of people have kind of heard your story and stuff and read interviews, but we like to go back to the very beginning. Where was that that first spark, that first interest in martial arts? What kind of led to that and, and started your martial arts journey? Yeah, okay, great question. As you mentioned, I'm from Chicago, so I graduated from high school in 1975. I was very athletic there, and both in springboard and in gymnastics, so I just grew up. And so, of course, all your friends are doing that and their families are doing that. So it's just what you do and you do it every day. And uh, so then in 76, when I left to go away to college in Joplin, Missouri, I was either going to try to seek out going into some kind of dance or martial arts. I wanted to do something different, but I wanted it to be similar. So um, I was very good friends and ultimately roommates with a guy 
who after being together for a year, then I found out that he was a black belt Japanese Gojuru. And it just blew me away because I had no idea. And I thought, how cool, you know, it's did for himself and he kept it to himself. And I really, really like that. Mm -hmm. So he started teaching me. And then after that, he uh, contacted Lou Angel, who was the night sergeant in a small town out just north of Joplin called Webb City. And um, he was retired from teaching. So my first classes with him were the abandoned jail cell of the Webb City Police Department. <laughs> wow. There's no windows and one light bulb hanging from a string. And that was where I went to two, three times a week for my lessons and go through. So that was the beginning. And, and that was amazing. That, that was absolutely. Then b before I left, he actually came out of retirement, opened the Academy of Self-Defense, which uh, remained open until his death which was just uh, a little over a year ago. Wow. So what, uh, that, what, what I, drew you to that? What, what drew you to Gojiru? What, you know, once you started, what made you want to keep going with it? What was it about that style? For the, it, it really wasn't about that style. Uh, it was about doing martial arts, doing karate, doing something that I loved. Okay. And, and, and I always wanted to do martial arts. So here's the opportunity to study with a guy like Lou Angel, who, in 1963, he lived in Tokyo, Japan, and got his third degree black belt directly from Gogen Yamaguchi. So what are the chances? You know, mm -hmm. you go to Joplin, Missouri, and you meet a guy like that. I mean, it's <laughs> impossible. So I went, okay, here's the opportunity. And so, you know, and, and as all of us have learned all throughout our lives, all these opportunities come and go. They, they exist as potential lifestyle changes, choices, so I made the choice to take advantage of this and get into it. And as soon as I did, I knew I was a lifer. Wow. You know, I, I never knew that I would do it professionally, go on to be in, never did any of that. Mm -hmm. But I loved it so much. It was so much fun. And to learn how to move like that with the dynamic and the power that's involved in all martial arts, it, it just resonated with me. And then it was right around that time. You remember the old television series Kung Fu with David Carradine? Yep. Uh, so it was my fascination with that show that made me look at martial arts as a way to really learn more about who and what you were. And uh, so these, you know, roughly billion to a billion and a half heartbeats that you and I have to expend in this life. Uh, I wanted to do it with the things I was passionate about. It was certainly martial arts. Okay. So just back in the seventies now in, in, in Lou Angel's class, just talk a little bit about the class. What was that experience like? I mean, people have heard stories, how much different it was in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties and how much yeah. has changed. Just a little bit about like what an average class was like. Yeah. Um, I think all of that is completely true and, and very, very correct. Those just to put it in context, you know, we live in a world now where it's so over commercialized by many, many, many fold that there are self-promoting black belts, people declaring themselves 10th degree black belts uh, all over the place. Uh, there is no cohesiveness. People don't work together. They work against one another. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's really a tragedy because something really, really special is lost. And that is the, the, the true essence of what it is to be a martial artist. Now, we confuse that these days because of this thing called mixed martial arts, which should be called mixed martial fighting because there's nothing artistic in what they do because it's it's all about beating the crap out of somebody is how you advance. Mm -hmm. And so that's being a martial fighter. If you're a martial artist, 
you would actually sacrifice something of yourself to help somebody else have a better life. And that metaphor, both literally in martial arts and a metaphor for how we're living in the world today, couldn't be more dramatic, you know? And that's that's a direct function of this cannibalistic capitalism that we have devolved into in this open society of money is everything and content of character is not only waning, it's almost at the bottom of the barrel, you know? Mm-hmm. You sacrifice something of yourself and suddenly you're marginalized, you're unheard of, you're pushed to the side. We have created a world where that does not exist in this Kempo 50 world that we live in and where content of character is everything. And uh, the lowest common denominator is that you can beat somebody up. The higher vibration is to be able to figure out how to make the world a better place before you die. And that's, that is our game. Nice. Okay. How long did you train first of all with Mr. Angel and then what led you to seek out Ed Parker? It was really five years in Gojiru. Four of them were with Angel. Okay. The whole reason I moved to Los Angeles and switched to Kempo and contacted Ed Parker was Lou Angel. Okay. Because if you go back to those original days of the 50s, there, there were only a handful of guys doing, you know, nobody even knew what martial arts was. Karate was maybe a dish in a restaurant somewhere. And and no one knew anything about it. And it was a rough, 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 tough time and place back then. He, uh, Lou Angel, personally knew Ed Parker because it's a very small world. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting ready to graduate from Missouri Southern State, then college, now university, with my undergraduate degree in psychology. Took me six years to get a four-year degree because I paid for it myself. I never took money from my parents or from the government. So I'm off and worked and made money and went back. Anyway, the good news is when I finished and I took my degree, I had zero debt. Nice. Because I pay, pay as you play. So I was able to make crazy, ridiculous, irresponsible decisions like (laughs) let's sell my car to rent a U-Haul and move to California to study Kempo. You can get away with stuff like that, you know, when you're free to make those decisions. So uh, Angel actually wrote a letter of recommendation for me to Ed Parker. And I moved out there in the summer of 83. And right when the international, which used to be the, the biggest tournament in the world, was going on, I uh, kind of stumbled in there. Coming from Joplin, Missouri, you walk into the gigantic auditorium of Long Beach, California, and you see thousands and thousands of competitors from all over the world. Yep. It was just, you know, rocked me. I just was like, I couldn't believe it. So now I start walking through the crowd trying to find Ed Parker asking here and there. And finally, I found him. I bowed very deeply to show respect. I handed him this letter. He opened it and read it. He said, oh, you're from my old friend, Lou Angel. That is amazing. So how is he? You know, we did all that. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm here to study Kempo. I came out here to meet you. And he said, OK. He gave me his home phone number. He said, give me two weeks to finish all of this tournament stuff I'm doing. Call me at home and I'll get you started. And and that was the beginning of my relationship in Kempo and with Ed Parker. Wow. Okay. And then what, you know, thinking back there, what you know, did you know, first of all, did you know anything about Kempo before that? I knew about Parker. Okay. I didn't really know anything at all. Not, not any realistic vision or concept of what Kempo was. So, you know, if there are any Kempo students who happen to be listening to this, and there probably are, mm-hmm. the day you walk into a Kempo school, it's like sticking your finger in a light socket. You know, it's like, oh, my God, the stuff that they do, the brutality 
the the execution of these phenomenal techniques, and then you put a knife in your hand, and and it becomes really, really in its own universe. Mm-hmm. So you're either going to be uh, appalled and reject that, or you're going to be stimulated by that and advance into that direction, which is what I did. But my first few years was just getting the crap beat out of me every single day I went in there because it was uh, we we hit very hard. We in the entire Kempo 50 world, which is now 20 countries, uh, we do old school like that. Nice. But back in those days, they did it with no pads. So you were always getting hurt and cut here and there. My nose broken a couple of times. Uh, but you, you kind of just keep showing up because you just got to have it. I got, you know, because I came in, there's 20 times the information uh, in Kempo that there is in Japanese Gojuru. Wow. At least 20 times. So it's mind boggling. And, and that in turn really, really motivated me. I, I did, and the talent pool in that room was outrageous. And all I wanted to do was be one of them. You know, so I was going to do whatever it took to get in there and become a good, respected Kempo black belt. And little did I know a few years later in 85, and Parker asked me to no longer go to that school in West L.A. where Larry Tatum was the manager and to start coming to his house with two other people and learn directly from him. Wow. Now, I mean, what do you say? I yeah. mean, there's only <laughs> two words, which are yes, sir. You know, yeah. And what, what was that like training directly with him? With Ed Parker? Yes. I never, ever took it for granted. I went to his house every week for three and a half years. I went through the entire system directly from him. Wow. I would also meet him at the West LA Dojo, which was then uh, taken over and managed by Brian Hawkins. So I would see him twice a week. And then he knew that I was starting to get interested in acting. And I believe he saw that if I were to make it, he would finally have a Kempo guy, you know, doing Kempo movies. So as a function of that, we became very, very close. When I got the job as the perfect weapon, you know, we were writing the script for me. I had full control of editing and choreographing the fight scenes unparalleled. No one has ever had that, especially in your first movie. Right. <laughs> and especially for a company, the biggest entertainment company in the world at that time, which was Paramount. I mean, you know, they've got all the money, they got all the time, they got all the power, they got all the lawyers, but they still let me choreograph all the fight scenes. And when I saw the edited version of the fight scenes, I was saying, you know, that doesn't go there. Where's this thing? We shot the close up of that. That should go here. Nick. And they went, you actually know that? And I said, yes, I this is my life, you know? And so they said, okay, why don't you go in and you edit it and let's have a look at what you do. And as soon as I was done, they said, okay, now you're going to edit the rest of the movie. It just the fight scenes, of course. Right. And of the 10 movies I started in, I edited all of those wow. fight scenes to maintain the integrity of the art because although Paramount looked at what I did and said, okay, you're obviously the person to do this. They, they had the maturity to do many, many people in the movie business, especially in L.A., won't get out of their own way. They just refuse to give up that kind of authority. And so every movie I did, I actually had it on contract that as long as I didn't interfere with the delivery schedule of post-production, I was given not only final edit, but final sound check. Wow. So that was just unheard of. 
and and especially for a first time guy you know i really didn't do anything but the truth is i studied acting five years before i did perfect weapon okay so i i always thought if i get a chance and and this is true very true in los angeles in the movie business but it's also true in life you get a chance you got to deliver right you know and stumble and so you'd better be ready and preparation is everything so Five years, I studied acting. I went on many auditions. I actually got hired. Do you remember the TV series called Hunter? Oh, yeah. Yep. So I did an episode of Hunter as one of the cops and had some lines. But the point is, I went to audition after audition after audition, got hired, did the job, got paid, and the check cleared the bank. Once you get all of those things in the line, now you can say you're an actor. Right. So before that, I never told anybody. No, all those years I studied, I never let anybody know I knew martial arts because I wanted to earn a position, even just a little bit as an actor to show people I can get hired and paid by a reputable company and be able to show them the demo reel or the tape or what have you. Mm -hmm. And that turned out to be the right choice for me. It took me five years to get there. Okay. So is it true? I thought I read this somewhere that you haven't actually watched the perfect weapon since Mr. Parker passed away. Yes, that, that is correct. Okay. Uh, when it was coming out, of course he died right after we were done filming. it. Mm-hmm. So we finished at the end, I think the right at the middle of November of 90. And, and the, the good news is when they edited fight scenes, they brought him to my trailer, which you just have a little TV, mm-hmm. but he and I shared my trailer equally and so he was able to see, especially the big fight scene, which was the one in the uh, Taekwondo gym. Oh, yeah. I love that one. And he, he, we were sitting on the couch next to one another, and the director came in and put the thing in, and we watched it. No sound effects, no color correction, just raw, pre-edited footage. And we just, he was out of his mind. He was clapping and, yeah, that's it. And he started bouncing up and down on the couch, you know, nice. like... He was so excited. It was like rocking me all over the place, but he was just incensed. He was so happy. And, uh, and that gave me great joy, as you can imagine, you know, if you really care for somebody and you give them something they've wanted all their life, it's very, very rewarding. Oh, definitely. So, so you, so how many times have you actually seen it then? You've only seen it one or two times then? Yes. I, I, okay. when it, when it first, of course, when you're responsible for editing, you got to yes. see the whole thing. And then when it was released, then Mr. Parker was gone because he died in December of 1990. And then the movie was released in March of 91. So I went, of course, all over the world, you know, promoting it and everything. And during those experiences, I did uh, see the movie back then when it was first released. But since then, I, you know, if I ever sit down and start to watch it, the memories that come back are so vivid and Mm -hmm. so powerful and so profoundly sad on so many levels you know not not only do i miss him and the interaction we had and the father-son relationship we had it was a very very deep and meaningful relationship and then he's gone right you know just you just can't believe when and i know many of the people listening you've all experienced that perhaps you have Mm -hmm. somebody you love that's very close and long before you would predict that they would be closer to death 70, 80, 90, 100, you know, he was 59. And, um, and I get a phone call from his son at Parker Jr. at six o'clock in the morning. 
tells me his dad died at the airport in Hawaii. He was going home to see his 94-year-old mother teach a seminar in Kona. And as soon as he stepped foot on Hawaiian soil, he had a massive heart attack and died. Now, you can read into that Mm -hmm. very interesting things because this guy, when you look at his life, it was so amazing and so extraordinary. He was absolutely brilliant beyond measure, Mm -hmm. way ahead of his time. And with what he did with Kempo, I'm talking about. Yes. And he was such a dynamic and, and his greatest asset was his intellect. This man was brilliant. He was the first one who took ancient Chinese fighting techniques and Americanized them, brought in principles and physics and geometry and, and impact related values, a way to analyze motion related to impact related to the destruction of the human body. And that scientific approach is what gave him the title of the American Kempo, mm-hmm. and that he was the father of American karate because he Americanized it. You know, it was way over 200 years ago when the Chinese came here to help us build the railroads. That's when martial arts really made it to America. Right. But his contribution will never be equaled because it was so groundbreaking to have, you know, this is what they talk about with very, very, very brilliant people like Albert Einstein. They they refer to, and, and our current day, uh, Elon Musk, people who can look at things and see them in a completely different way than everybody else. And they, they often refer to that as the mind of a child, because a child doesn't have all of the buffers and the judgments and all that stuff you learn. It's much more innocent. It's much more open. And so people who can have an open mind and really make connections that no one else has made, that's really what brilliance is. And that was him. Agreed. So I'm curious what level, whether it was in Gojuru or Kempo, what level did you start teaching at and kind of what, what drew you to teaching? Uh, I began teaching very, very, like I would say, orange, probably purple belt in Japanese Gojuru back in Missouri. Okay. And so I was, I, and since then, so 78 i started martial arts by 79 i was helping to teach okay and i haven't stopped so what do you think's changed about your teaching style over the years a couple of things you know as i mentioned earlier my undergraduate degrees in not only in psychology but strictly in the behavioral sciences so that's where my area of expertise really lies so to take that information and be able to plug it into a martial arts system, especially a really, really sophisticated one like Kempo, mm-hmm. it just was a perfect fit. And, and the end result of that is you become a much more effective teacher when you really understand the interaction and the interplay between punishment and reinforcement. Okay. And when you understand that paradigm, you start making different choices of how you interact with other people including how you think, because how you think is what creates the words inside your head, which leads to the behavior outside your body. So it's always thoughts, words, actions, always for all of us. Well, if you can learn how to think differently and and for the value of having different perspectives, you, you become very, very wealthy of your intellect. This allows you to see the world from a completely different place. And the end result of that is, you see different options, different ways to move forward that other people don't see. And um, 
and that was the value of being with him. He was so brilliant. I was, I'm not kidding. I went to, I just, I went to his house every week for three and a half years just to study Kemple, independent of all the times I went there for the movie and all the, t- he was on the set with me every day. Take those off the table. Every time I went to his house, I would sit down on the front porch and put my shoes back on leaving. And I would just shake my head and go, he did it again. <laughs> Every time I went in there, he just blew me away. He would make connections of this technique with that. Here's how you use this principle of physics to apply here and apply there. And it was just mind boggling. He was truly a brilliant man. And I'm telling you, we lost a lot when he died. Right. Oh, I agree completely. It's, I, I, like I, said, I never, never had the chance to, to meet him or anything. I didn't even, like I said, I didn't find out really much about American Kempo until I saw the movie. But afterwards, I started reading a lot about him. I've read you know, all of his books, all the American Insight, you know, Kempo Insight books, and read interviews. Infin- yeah, Infinite Insights, yes, into American Kempo. I have all those books and I, you know, his Encyclopedia of Kempo. And so I've yeah. le- learned a lot about him after the fact, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, it's great, though, isn't it? I mean, you pick up the Encyclopedia Kempo, and remember, that's 45 years old. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And he was the the trailblazer. Now, we have been able to take exactly what he did, and I learned that from him, and apply it grappling so that we can infuse how to fight on the ground. How do you do your Kempo on your back? Mm-hmm with somebody sitting on top of you, by the way. And that actually led, leads to my next question. What what led to Kempo 5.0? What led you to do that and seek that out and, and, and create, create basically create, a, 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 I don't know if I call it a new system, but update the system. Yeah, an evolved system, Correct. I think is accurate. Uh, ready. But, but fair enough, good question. Uh, the, the truthful answer is my own insecurity. Oh, okay. Because by then I had done the movies, so I was a movie star and I was out there. And there was this new wave of something coming through, starting with the Gracies and then later the Machados. Now it was 91 when that started. And that just, Kempo really, really had and earned the position of being the street fighting martial art all through the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. And then when the Gracies came to town, that changed. Right. They just yanked that out from under you. So now, by now, Mr. Parker, of course, was dead. And as this encroachment kept growing at a breakneck pace, it evolved into this thing we call MMA now. And then the numbers of people who were doing that were just astronomical and no end in sight. So here's the question. Do you think your tempo would work when somebody takes you to the ground if you don't know how to fight on the ground? And let me just give you my personal bias. The answer is absolutely not. If you don't know what you're doing down there, even a really bad jiu-jitsu or MMA guy will cream you. And that's the uncomfortableness of what Kempo, other Kempo guys don't like. They don't like to hear me talking like that. Right. Because they want to live in a world of, oh, I would just poke him in the eye or we'd go to the ground and I'd bite him in the ear. Okay, maybe you would. But I know a lot of people who are in that world. And they have taught me. And many, many, many of my black belts are in that world. And you would never have a chance to do any of that. They would take all of that away from you, sit on top of you and just pound you into submission. You know, it it would be as ugly as they wanted it to be, because if you don't have the skill set to defend yourself down there, you know, you're just you're just a sucker for whoever comes along. And I knew that. And also I knew 
because back then I, I was much more recognizable in the public. Okay, where if some guy like that went, you know, he could take me down and break my arm or choke me out or dislocate my shoulder, whatever. And then that would be a feather in his cap. You know, I right. beat the shit out of Jeff Speakman. You know, I broke his arm. I did this. I did that. So I started going, okay, I got to do something because this is a real, real possibility. You know, so I, I went, okay, I got to do this. And that's when I was just having a conversation with a guy who happened to be many, many years in jujitsu. He went to a school in L.A., in Topanga, to be specific. And it was Todd Nathanson's Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And he talked to Mr. Nathanson for me. I got an invitation. I came in. They were the best. They were great. Because you can imagine also the whole movie star thing going in a jiu-jitsu MMA school. And all they want to do is beat the shit out of you. Right. Which they certainly showed me, you know, what I didn't know. There's no question. But I wore a white gi and a white belt for four years. Wow. And I got in there and I was the other white meat, you know, <laughs> I just got trashed on a regular basis, but I learned, you know, you want to get good at tennis, play with somebody who beats the hell out of you every time you play, you'll get better. And, and that's exactly what happened to me then. And Todd Nathanson's, well, I, I looked at him in the same way I looked at Ed Parker, a brilliant person, an amazing communicator because it's one thing to be great at what you do or to be a badass the next thing is can you transfer that information into other people right or is it just going to die with you and and he was a, a magnificent communicator so i was definitely at the right place at the right time and picked up that information from him and then inculcated we we already had begun doing that a large part of it was done but then i found him and i went in and said would you look at this and tell me what you think. And he looked at it and said, you know, that's pretty good, except that wouldn't work. And I, and I was like, why? <laughs> and he said, well, let me show you. And then, of course, he showed me and I went, oh, oops. And uh, then we started to revamp and change everything. So technically, right now, we teach Kempo 5.0.2. Oh, OK. Next revelation. Completely rewrote the journal for a second time. Reshot all the videos. Everything is new and up to date. And it was me understanding the danger I'd be in, in a fight, in a bar with a guy who had any of that information. If he took me to the ground, it would be a massacre and I'd be on the wrong end of that discussion. Okay. So I'm curious how much of the original Kempo you learned from Mr. Parker is still part of Kempo 5.0.2? Well, I would say all of it really, because Good. the way that I brought the way that we, you know, we, my whole world, my Tempo 5 family, my family of black belts, we all worked together for all these years. So, and, and many of them are jujitsu fighters and MMA fighters. So they brought their expertise and we worked together collectively as a family, as a group, and we developed this uh, system together. And um, so as we did that, every single thing that came in from the outside, meaning the jujitsu kind of moves, was put under the analysis of the Kempo principles and physics and application developed by Ed Parker. Okay. So every single thing that was brought in was brought in and analyzed and put in that basket of, of how we analyze motion. So every single thing we do on the ground is a Kempo ground system because we Kempoized all of it as it came into us and developed it. And because it's based on logic and science and physics and principles, 
it really wasn't that difficult to do that as long as you understood the science of motion. Then you just bring in this 800 pound gorilla, you know, and you go, okay, I got to figure this out. And all of us got together and we started figuring it out. Todd Nathanson helped enormously. As I mentioned, several of my students were wrestlers all their lives, jujitsu guys, competitors, and they brought their expertise in. And we continued to evolve and grow and hone the art to bring it to what I feel is the the most effective street defense system anywhere today. Very cool. No, I, since the first time I read about it, it's it's definitely in, in, intrigued me a lot. And, and it's just a... The way I understood Ed Parker was he, he meant the art to continue evolving. So to me, that puts you on the right track. So, Yeah, not only that, but there are these famous quotes that are all over the Internet. If you don't know them, you have to avoid them. Mm-hmm. And the first one is, when I'm gone, I hope no one traditionalizes my art. Okay, everybody did exactly that. Yep. Except us. And uh, really a couple of other. There are really four of us. 100 Ed Parker black belts were four of us that did what he asked. And and the other quote that's great is he said, the ignorant refuse to study and the intelligent never stop. A real martial artist pursues change. He doesn't fear it. Nice. So there it is. There's the mandate directly from Ed Parker. There's the necessity, which is this whole Brazilian thing that came in and turned everything upside down. You would be hard pressed to find somebody who is more grateful to the Gracie's family and the Machado family than I am because they showed us what we were not. And then we rose to the occasion and evolved Kempo as the direct mandate from Ed Parker called to now include this aspect of our fighting. So if you look at everything before Kempo 5.0, we would call it 4.0, but there was also 3.0, just all of Kempo karate. It's really made to fight the drunk in the bar. Okay. Kempo 5.0 is made to fight the drunk MMA guy in the bar. Very cool. Nice. Nice. And I will definitely put links out there so people, you know, if they're interested, can learn more about the system and everything too. So, cause that's, it's, it's very intriguing. So some kind of to fun ones, fun, fun questions to, to kind of close out the interview here, but what advice would you give someone, someone approaches you, maybe you get a call from someone other side of the country. They're like, Hey, I think I'm thinking of getting involved in martial arts, never done it, done it in my life. What are some tips you'd give them what to look for and maybe some things to avoid? Oh, absolutely. And, and this has nothing to do with the style of martial arts. Right. That is first you walk in and make sure that whoever is the head guy at the school, whatever rank he is, fifth degree or eighth or 10th or third or whatever, every one of those diplomas are proudly displayed on the wall. And then make sure that there are numbers of years between those dates. Right. If you walk in somewhere and some guy has a seventh degree black belt hanging on the wall and the one next to it is a fifth, your first question is, where's your sixth degree <laughs> diploma? And what you're looking at is someone who jumped rank. Yeah. He went from fifth to seventh. What he did was he bought it because you would have to earn it like you do in Kempo 5.0. Right. No one jumps rank. No one gets ahead. Everybody does the years. And now I'm a ninth degree black belt. And every stripe on my belt is a test, which means every single black belt who's in my association you have to test through ninth degree black belt. If I do it, you got to do it. Yeah. And, and all, my, all my years, I've personally seen one person ever actual jump rank during a test. And that was early nineties. There was a friend of mine who was testing for his second degree black belt. He was 15 years old and had one of the most amazing tests I've ever witnessed in my life. And the ninth degree grandmaster jumped him to third right there. <laughs> so I mean, he, 
you know, he didn't, didn't buy it, but he's the only, it's the only time I've ever seen that happen <laughs> where they actually did it during a test and earned it in the instructor's opinion. So, right. So I agree with right. you completely. That's that, that, that happens Everybody way too often. Does it on their own. The very first guy to declare himself a 10th degree black belt in Kempo promoted himself to eighth immediately after Mr. Parker died and then promoted himself to 10th jumping overnight. Wow. So you just shake your head and you go, and that guy asked Mrs. Parker to promote him to eighth in the back of the limousine at the funeral. Yeah, I actually heard that story from from Ed Parker Jr. And he said people tried to get him to promote him. He's like, I can't promote you. I don't have that power to do that. Right. It was sad that you would think rank is that important Mm -hmm. that you're going to at his funeral and then you're going to look. And there were many people who were his seniors. Why didn't you call them? And say, I, I want to go to eight. How about if we do it together? You know, make some kind of an attempt to work together to get some credibility other than you doing it on your own. Right. That is a complete move of the ego, which doesn't belong in martial arts, except it's rampant, but it still doesn't belong here. Agreed. So I know we, you kind of touched on this a few times throughout the, the interview. What are your thoughts on the MMA and the UFC? And, and are you a fan? My thoughts are that it has been for me and for everybody in my Kempo family, the greatest thing, because it forced us to tear back the layers of the insecurity and face head on, you know, the 800 pound gorilla because of its popularity. So again, I'm extremely grateful because my life right now is phenomenal. And it's great because we selected to evolve And we selected that because we were faced with having to deal with what the Gracie Machado family brought to our country. So so it is great. I am not a fan of it. I never watch it. I don't go to it. I won't participate because because it is not mixed martial arts. It's mixed martial fighting. Right. When you juxtapose that next to, let's say, Kung Fu, since it's been around longer than everything else. And even still, it's true today. When you go into a really quality Kung Fu school, that master is interested in what are you lacking as a human being? What do you have too much of? What do you have too little of? They analyze your energy. What energy do you get from your diet, from your spirituality, from your physical exercise, from your personal relationships? All those things add up to try to make you a complete human being and allow you to be happy. And happiness is what we would all like to achieve. Because you know, all throughout life, there's suffering and there's death and there's destruction and there's disappointment. That's not the question. The question is, how are you going to handle that when it crashes on your doorstep? As you know, I went through stage four throat cancer in 2013. Stage five, you're dead. I lost 80 pounds, eight zero. Three days before my Las Vegas camp in June, I had my 18 inches of feeding tube taken out, but I still ran the test and I still kicked everybody into rank and I still taught a seminar and I was 80 pounds lighter. You look at pictures of me back then and I look like I'm almost dead from cancer because I was almost dead from cancer. But it's such a powerful motivator. I came out of that and in the years, it takes years to get your mojo back Mm -hmm. if you live. And it took me years to do that. And when I came out, there's this overwhelming 
thought drive power inside of myself, which essentially was, I ain't drinking the Kool-Aid anymore. You know, you guys don't want to adapt. You don't want to grow. You don't want to do what Ed Parker asked you to do. You're jumping rank. You're self-promoting and I'm done. I am not going to, you know, speak quietly anymore just so I don't offend anybody. I really don't give a shit. And so I'm doing exactly what Ed Parker wanted us to do. We have more schools than any international organization in Kempo in history. Nice. And and it's a wonderful feeling of, uh, and don't get me wrong, I still have many, many friends in Kempo who are not in FIBO. They do support me. Mm-hmm. They, they don't want to do any ground. They don't want to evolve the art. It's the mandate from the man. You don't want to do it. Okay. You know, but don't condemn me for doing it. Right. Sit on the sidelines and throw darts at me because I did it and you didn't. And if you don't like that, I don't care. Great philosophy to have. So there you go. All right. So this one, who would you put on your martial arts Mount Rushmore? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's a new question. I just started asking. (laughs) That is a great question. And it doesn't have Uh, to be four. I mean, it can be two, it can be three, you know. Well, by far and away, the two people that influenced me the most are Lou Angel and Ed Parker. So right. that that would be one and two. In fact, this year, it looks like we are going to be able to have our event here in Las Vegas on J- July 7, 8, 9. And the theme of this year is Forever Grateful. Nice. We're, we're dedicating everything to express our gratitude to Lou Angel and Ed Parker, the people who so greatly influenced me and in turn, all of us that allow us to have this amazing life we have. And the life we have is that we're together because of love and friendship. And oh, by the way, we do a little karate. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely who and what we are. It's about trying to be the best that humans can be. There is no judgment. There's no nothing about religion, sexuality, race, nationality, None of that. It's all about the content of your character and how much you want to participate in bringing positive energy into this world of 20 countries. If you want to roll up your sleeves and get to work and be held accountable for being exactly what that black belt says that you are, that's wrapped around your waist, then this is your home. If you don't want to be challenged, if you don't want to be held accountable, if all you want is rank so you can parade around in some gymnasium somewhere trying to be something you're not, you're not going to like us at all. Nice. Good answer. Good answer. All right. So in all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy you've learned that really stands out? That's maybe the, the one that's really personal to you that you keep coming back to and, and you make sure you teach in your class to this day. Yeah. You know, there are a few of those. Okay. One of them was given to me when I first started the five O. Uh, somebody who I consider a very good friend, one of the all-time icons of Kempo Karate, and that's Bob White. Oh, yes. And when I did this move, when it, which takes us back, I started in 2002. We, we changed the Kempo 5.0 in 2005. When that happened, there was such an overwhelming backlash of the rest of the Kempo community that didn't like it, put me down. Who are you to change the art? I mean, there was this avalanche of negative stuff. And Bob White came to me and he said, and I'll never forget this quote, apply it every day. And it was, 
other people's opinion of me is none of my business. Nice. I like that. And I went, okay. And, and right at that time, there was another legendary figure of Kempo who's no longer with us, Frank Trejo, who I was very, very close to and knew him quite well. And right when I came out, I hadn't spoken to him for years, right when I came out with the announcement of what Kempo 5 is and in 2005, that's the end of Kempo Karate in the beginning of Kempo. He sent me a an email, which he had never done before. <laughs> so I completely out of the blue. And he said, no matter what anybody says, keep doing what you're doing. This is what the old man wanted for you. Nice. And I took both of those deeply to heart. And I said, okay, you know, whatever it is that's going to come my way, in terms of negative energy and people complaining of this, then then just go ahead and do it. Right. Because I'm still going to do this. If you're going to come in and beat me up, then go ahead and do that. Because I've been beat up before. But that won't change who I am. And it won't make me detract from the Kempo 5 journey that I'm on with everybody else. So, you know, get over it. Or go ahead, hate me, dislike me, whatever. Just stay out of my way. Don't come over here and try to bitch at me and and convince me that what I'm doing, just be in your own world that you've created because I've created this world. And so you don't want to come. Don't show up. But every time I ask people to come to sit on the testing board of the camp year after year, they all show up. Nice. Another great answer. All right. So these last few, you you can't pick one that you've been involved in at all. So first up, favorite martial arts book. Wow. I, the one you named, uh, the encyclopedia of Kemp. Yep. Okay. That is a wealth of knowledge in that book done by Ed Parker. It is, it really shows the depth of his intellect. Okay. If you would get in, look at it and start to apply those principles, you can take those principles and concepts, by the way, mm-hmm. right out of that book and apply them to any martial art anywhere. And your effectiveness will go straight up. Yep. Oh, like I said, I, I, I got that before I even started learning Kempo at all. I, that was one of the first books I ordered. So it's just, I uh, t- tell you from, from that, I, I, it's still one of my favorite books. I, I'm just going to ask, I, I, I'm sure you agree that that is a phenomenal and a mountain of work. That's a lifetime <laughs> yeah. of some work to condense into a book like that. Yes. And again, at the risk of being redundant, the amazing thing is that he was the one that created that. He really is the supreme black belt of Kempo Karate. They'll never be. There are all these other people who are tense now. I hear there's like a couple of hundred. Wow. And there was even one guy who declared himself a 12th degree black belt. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He since then, and worked for several years, signed black belt diplomas as a 12th degree black belt. And he was a direct black belt under Ed Parker. Wow. So then that's exactly, you just go, how can you do that? You know, okay, I don't want the answer to that question. Yeah. Because I don't want to have a conversation with that guy. <laughs> right. All you do, you want to be a 12th or 15th degree black, whatever it is, you go ahead, knock yourself out. But I'm not drinking that Kool Aid. <laughs> I, I did see, and it wasn't Kempo, but I did see an instructor one time on his website that declared himself a 12th degree, but what's funny is how he came up with it. He had a fourth degree in three styles and he actually added them up and he showed it on his <laughs> website, called himself a triple threat and said, 12th degree black belt and said fourth plus fourth plus fourth. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> oh, 
never heard that before. That, that is terrific. And, and the funny thing is I actually called him out on it. And like a few months later, it was off of his website. And I wish I would have got screenshots because people don't believe me that he did that. <laughs> oh, that is hilarious. It I was, thought I heard it. Was, it was entertaining. <laughs> he said, thank you for that, Brian. <laughs> nice, nice. Right. My day. That's good. Next one. Favorite martial arts TV show? Oh, by far. The, there's just hands down. It's a David Carradine. <laughs> nice. Come Okay. There's just because they put so much depth in that, the wisdom and the teachings of the past and make you curious about what is Buddhism? What is, what is Hinduism? What are where did that come from? Why were those martial arts created a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand years ago, four thousand years ago? What what is all that? You know, there are hieroglyphs that are on the pyramids in Egypt of the bodyguards who are in a martial art pose, like a one legged martial art pose doing two vertical outward blocks you know like in a in a crane stance mm -hmm. so did martial arts start way back then four thousand five hundred years ago something like it did and you know the farther you go back in history in any topic the fuzzier it gets because right. everybody rewrites history to make them the benefactor but um but the truth is it goes back a long 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 way and the, the thing that Ed Parker did, which we built our world on, was Americanizing it and bringing those principles and concepts in. Then you can adapt to anything. Nice. So I have to ask you, anyone, anyone of my guests who, who says Kung Fu as their favorite, I have to ask, did you ever watch the, the 90s version, the, the, the sequel, the Kung Fu, The Legend Continues? No. Okay. <laughs> See, I no. actually, I'm one of the few I, I actually enjoyed it. <laughs> I don't, I don't do like, you know, one of my favorite movies I saw as a kid, that's like a comfort movie for me was John Wayne's true grit. Ah, and then nice. when they did the new true grit with uh, Jeff Bridges, I, I, I don't want to watch it. I, I don't need it. I, you know, I want to live in the memory of how that affects me. Right. I can tell you so, the, the new true grit actually wasn't, was better than I thought it was going to be. I was very, no. very pleasantly surprised by it. <laughs> All right, so this one, and, and once again, can't pick one that you've been involved in, but favorite martial arts movie? Yeah, big, big question there. Okay. I always default to, because of how it affected me, mm -hmm. and that was Chuck Norris's Octagon. Oh, nice. So really, really great. And that just was like the, one of the first martial art movies I ever saw. And then I got to know Chuck Norris a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, can't call him a friend, but he's an acquaintance, certainly. And uh, and he has always been a very kind and very generous person. And and here's here's a bit of interesting irony. I'm just thinking of this for the first time <clears throat> when I was getting ready to release Perfect Weapon. And of course, you're with a company like Paramount. So mm -hmm. they're throwing everything at it. They hired this company to come and teach me about public speaking and how to present myself and do interviews and all that. So I went through all that. And those people continuously would point to Chuck Norris. They all the time said, this is the way to do it. You always pay attention to your public and you're a kind person and you're good and you're, you know, and they kept referring to Chuck Norris and they are, they are right. That is who he is. Nice. So and maybe I'm completely wrong, but I could have sworn I remember reading something in an interview one time that at one point there was talk of you possibly guest starring or being in a few episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger. Am I wrong yeah. on that? No, that's completely right. We were just in the beginning stages of talking about it, talking about eight episodes. Okay. 
all of that. And what happened was Warner Brothers didn't want that to happen. They wanted to do a TV series with me. Oh. So what they do is they lock you up. They give you what's called a holding deal mm-hmm. for a year. And they guarantee that they're going to pay you X number of dollars if they don't do your movie or your TV series. So you're getting paid to say no to anybody else. Okay. And the thing that was for the TV series. So we started that, signed the contract, went on, had our agreement. Okay, now we're moving forward. And when it came time to the specifics of the agreement, of course, I brought forward the language of all of my other movie contracts, Mm -hmm. which is that I get not only to choreograph, but I get final edit and final sound check as long as I don't interfere with the delivery schedule. Sounds pretty simple to me. And Warner Brothers came back and said, we don't give actors that kind of authority. And I said, okay, I got an idea. Give me a title. Give me another title. Don't pay me for it. Just give me a title that would allow you to have to, to, so that I could have the authority to make sure that the, the content of my martial art wouldn't be compromised by somebody editing who doesn't know what they're doing. Even if they do know what they're doing, I can still deliver a better fight scene because I know exactly how it's supposed to look. It just makes sense. I will actually save you money. I will actually give you a more dramatic fight scene than the editor, no matter how much he has experience. And they just came back and said, we don't do that. And no matter what I, and of course my agents and lawyers, no matter what we did, no matter who we spoke to, they wouldn't budge. And I said, okay, so I'll just sit here for a year and collect my money and I'll be on my way. Because I am not going to risk giving the authority of the content of the martial art that I represent to some person I don't know. And, and I even said, look, after we do a few shows and I work with the same guy and he gets it, I'm good. You know, maybe let me look at it every now and then, but let me sort of like train somebody to think Kempo, to do Kempo, to understand its dynamics. Let me, let me, no, they wouldn't do it. Wow. I said, all right, that, it's craziness, yeah, right? That's their loss. <laughs> terrible business decision because here's a guy and I'm very production friendly. I mean, I know what I'm doing. I learned how to, I produced three of the seven independent movies that I did. How did I get to that position? As soon as I started doing movies, I said, okay, I got to learn how to make movies because if I were to do that, my value would go up. And so I proved that over and over and over again. And it just didn't matter. So I went, okay, these are the wrong guys. And and I've led my life that way, to be honest with you. I probably could have done more movies several more movies Mm -hmm. i could have done that tv series i could have done a lot of things but i am not willing to sell out i don't sell black belts i don't there's just nothing i don't care money is not my god and it is so much to the west uh, to all of us in the west and and uh, especially los angeles and the movie business forget about it there's just no nothing but money nobody cares about anything it's just a miserable it's the greatest time when you're making a movie and it's the worst time when you're not (laughs) you know it's just unbelievable yin yang experience that uh but anyway that's the answer good all right so final question this one i'm really curious about especially since you've done choreography and editing and stuff now this one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie exactly but is there just any movie that you've seen throughout your life that you just think has an amazing fight scene in it a martial arts fight scene a martial arts fight scene yes okay 
be easier for me to answer just fight scene. <laughs> and if you um, want to go with just that, that's fine too. You know, my favorite action movie is The Professional. Oh, okay. Good movie. Uh, yeah. And and um, Luke Poisson directed and produced it. I mean, it was just nothing but incredible brilliance because the, the, it was, you know, I, I loved acting. I loved learning about acting. I loved performing as an actor. I loved watching other people. Once you start making movies, you never look at movies the same because now you know what it takes. And now you know when you watch Dustin Hoffman deliver in Death of a Salesman, you know the talent and the work and the dedication and the focus that it would take to deliver a performance like that just blows me away. Right. I have complete understanding and appreciation of what that is. And and the other part of making a movie, I love watching camera movement, lighting. If I would have grown up in the movie business, I would have been either a director or a, a director of photography, a DP. Because the DP paints with light. And when I first saw that, it just blew my mind. I just watched these people illuminate things and like people and how important it is and how much time it takes and that they are artisans, that they are so trained and so amazing at what they do. And I looked at that and I went, God, I would love to live my life, you know, being a cinematographer of some in some way nice. that that really excited me to, to do that. But not in this lifetime. Jeff, I just want to thank you, man. I'm, I'm so glad we were able to do this. It's, it's been so much fun. I, I, I loved hearing your story and just some great answers. And I love what you're doing with Kempo 5.0 and definitely like continued success with that. And I will post any links you want on the show notes to, to promote anything you're doing. Great. And please send the information to me of when this is going to air. And I will send it to all my schools all over the world. And I promise you all of them will watch. Awesome. Listen. Awesome. Yeah. And it's, it should be, Let's see, I'm counting. I think I'm about five or six weeks ahead. For the, for the first time in about a year since the show launched, I'm actually a little bit ahead now. Uh, when, <laughs> when, I, when I first launched the show, I actually pre-recorded 22 episodes. And then I, wow. I, I kind of got lazy with that. And then suddenly I'm like, oh, no, I have one episode left. I better get going. <laughs> so, right. so, yeah, but it's, it's coming up on the one-year anniversary. I think you're going to be episode either 54 or 55. So okay. that'll be kind of, we just did episode 49 last week, so so it'll be coming soon. But I will definitely send you all the information and, and promote the heck out of it on my side also. Awesome, sir. Thank you again for this wonderful opportunity. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.